and Shalom Aleichem, uh, of course, is the welcoming of Shabbat song, but I'm not going to do the normal Shalom Aleichem. Got that first part. Here's part two. Got it now, back to the beginning. One person messaged me that my mic was going in and out. Is it going in and out for folks, or is it mostly steady? For most of you. Give me thumbs up if it's steady, and down if it's not good. I'm getting thumbs up. Thumbs up. Okay. Maybe it was just one person. Um, okay. Excellent. Good to see you all. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us in 55 degree Arizona weather. We are putting our uh, our winter coats on. <laughs> we don't know what to do. We're all staying home, and then we stay home anyways. But <laughs> so we're having a great time over here. 
Okay, friends, here we go. Malacha 17. Malacha 17, learning about Shabbat. Shabbat is the number one source of resilience of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have survived because of Shabbat. Of course, there's more to the story. But, um, but this is something that, as, as famously was said, that more than the Jews keep Shabbat, Shabbat keeps the Jews. So Mesach, with Mesach, mounting a warp or stretching threads onto a loom. We encounter the first malacha involved with the weaving process. The horizontal threads in woven material are called the woof or the weft, and the vertical threads are called the warp. Before one starts to weave, one must thread the warp. <clears throat> this is what Mesach is concerned with on an ethical level, crisscrossing perpendicular threads. To create fabric, one must weave together the warp and the woof. And with this ability, one has the freedom to create an infinite number of designs with different colors and patterns. The creative freedom inherent in the weaving process is a microcosm of all human freedom, which in turn are represented in 39 malachot as a whole. When it comes to weekday creativity, the sky is the limit as to the material object that has the ability to create. But the fact that the malachot are permitted during the work week but not on Shabbat, does not divest Shabbat of its own form of freedom. As Erich Fromm said in arguing that Shabbat is about freedom, the Sabbath symbolizes a state of union between man and nature and between man and man. By not working, that is to say, by not participating in the process of natural and social change, man is free from the chains of time, although only for one day a week. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel takes a similar philosophical approach. He who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness, and the betrayal in embezzling his own life. He must say farewell, farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has needed, has already been created, and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. Part of what th this freedom inspires in us is the notion that each of us strives to be our authentic selves. For example, PET scans, PET scans show that not all brains work the same way, right? This is only, this is only a medical evaluation, not a spiritual. And although there are economists and psychologists who have who would have us believe that human behavior is entirely predictable. We know from experience that every human is unique and is empowered by choices of self-interest, altruism, or, some, or something else on the spectrum entirely. What will we choose to weave together to create an interwoven fabric in our lives? We are the creators of our own respective tapestries. Jean-Paul Sartre, arguably the most influential modern existential, existentialist philosopher, argued that humans are radically responsible for who they are. He argued that we create our own essence through how we live and that our existence precedes our essence since we are, quote unquote, terrifyingly free. He probably overstated his case, but nonetheless, the thought experiment is crucial. What would I choose to be and how would I choose to act if the choice were completely and entirely mine? Of course, it's not entirely up to us, but what if, we, what if it were? Our creative capacity goes both ways. 
we impact the heavens, the, the Hasidic teachers suggest. Thus, just as we, re we read at the beginning of the Torah, just as we read at the beginning of the Torah about the divine creation of the world in which humans live, the Malacha of Mesach reminds us that we can be creative as well, and that human creativity extends to the imaginative ways in which we reach the highest spiritual heights to interact with the divine. Through these interactions, we also develop our own selves. One way to think about the human ability to create is to consider the creative impact of our interactions with other people. This aspect of our lives on earth is embodied in a Talmudic teaching that prescribes a blessing, a blessing to be recited if 12 months have passed since last seeing a friend. If you haven't seen a friend in 12 months, you say a blessing. Blessed are you, God our Lord, King of the universe, who resurrects the dead. Oh, resurrects the dead. This is rather strange since the person didn't actually die and become resurrected. Is it really so extreme if one hasn't seen a friend in a year? So here's a nice explanation. Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz, an 18th century Hasidic master, teaches that we make the blessing because the joy in seeing a friend whom one hasn't seen in that long creates an angel, a malach. Malach. This is related to the idea that angels can only survive a year on earth. <laughs> I don't think angels really look like that, but it's kind of a cool picture, right? Thanks, AJ. Uh, can only survive it. An angel can only survive a year on earth. If two friends see each other over the course of the year again, the angel receives a new lease on life, an extension on the life. But after a year, the angel's gone. So indeed, after a year, when two friends reconnect, a new angel must be created, and that is the resurrection we are blessing. Now, this is also because blessing in Jewish tradition, typically are only found on ben adam l'makot. That's to say, acts that are between humans and God. Ben adam l'chaveiro, acts between humans and humans, we don't make blessings. For example, you give tzedakah. We don't cause him to give back into the to the fellow asking for money on the street, or the mitzvah of sexual relations, or the mitzvah of, um, of visiting the sick. We don't make blessings when we do these ethical acts. We make blessings on rituals between humans and God, not between humans and humans. So this is kind of an interesting blessing that we make, um, a blessing of gratitude. And here's the idea. We do make blessings of gratitude, which are different than blessings of gratitude. It's not a mitzvah to see your friend, but it's an expression of gratitude. Just like you say a blessing of gratitude if you, if you meet a sage, a Jewish or a Gentile sage, you meet, you meet them, you say a blessing. If you see someone, actually the Talmud says, if you see someone who looks particularly strange, if they look particularly strange, you make a blessing. Or particularly beautiful. There's all kinds of interactions we see in the world. You see a rainbow, right? All types of things we encounter in the world and make a blessing. We've lost this. I actually think the blessing is the source of all Because when people talk about spirituality today, they often mean the thing they do in the morning, or the thing they do at night. I'm going to yoga. I'm going to prayer services. I'm going to meditate, right? Boom, did it, done. But the blessing is the source of your spirituality. Why? Because it happens throughout the day. You don't do it in the morning and be done. The Torah says you make 100 blessings. So the interesting about the bracha, the bracha is, up. Oh, you're going to eat something, you make a blessing. You're done eating, you make a blessing. You got to go into the bathroom, make a blessing. 
Right? You see a rainbow, make a blessing. You see a person in the year, make a blessing. You see the ocean, make a blessing. And so it's um, it's throughout the day we make these as a way to recenter ourselves to our values and express our gratitude. So this discourse around angels is mystical, of course, but it can be understood in more rational terms as well. The angel is the force, the energy the, that exists in, the, in that space, the sacred divine space between the self and the other, whom we acknowledge has a greater sum than its parts, the two individuals. Similarly, our rabbis teach that whoever performs a mitzvah creates an angel. Indeed, our freedom creates angels above and below. Our freedom leads to gratitude and to, to our creator. In experiencing gratitude and in loving God, one comes to, to, to love God's creation and the totality of God's creations. The Maharal of Prague writes, love of all creatures. I don't think he looked at all like that, but that's the statue that's up there. Uh, I mean, maybe he did. <laughs> love of all creatures is also love of God. For whoever loves the one loves all the works that God has made. When one loves God, it is impossible not to love God's creatures. Also, the converse is true. If one hates the creatures, it is impossible to love God who created. That's the Maharal of Brock. God created and continues to create beautiful creatures, each one wholly unique and never to be replicated in history. To love God is to love the divine creations. Another Hasidic teacher, Rabbi Avraham Chaim of Zlachim, seeks to reconcile human freedom with divine omniscience. Here's what he writes. From, this is from um, quoted in Torah Tamagi. It is written, God planted the garden in Eden from before. Our sages comment, <laughs> that's a cover of one of our, our publications. Our sages comment that the garden of Eden or paradise was created before the universe. What? A primordial garden of Eden? How can that be? The holy rub dove bear, the, the, the um, Magi of Mezrich, which says the Mezrich Magi, typically called the Magi of Mezrich. Also, he asked, how was the Garden of Eden created before man? Is it not true that each person creates their own Garden of Eden through their good deeds? This being so, where was this Garden of Eden before humans were created? He explained that for God, past and future are exactly the same. God looks and sees until the end of all generations. The delight that God has from the righteous who would do God's will therefore existed even before the righteous were created. The light came before God, causing uh, to create the Garden of Eden. So this is very interesting. This is one of the ways we, we reconcile, we not reconcile, but address the, the, the stira, the conflict between free will and divine om om omniscience. If God knows everything, then how are humans free? What do you mean? God knows what you're going to do, so you're not free to do it. God already knows what you're going to do. It's, it, it's clear. So we say... God exists outside of time. It's not linear, past, present, and future. Because God exists outside of time, and it's not sequential, God can see what's going to happen, and that, is, that, is, and that means um, that free will is still there. Yeah. No, more to talk about. <laughs> more to talk about on that issue. To give a sense of how uniquely creative humans are on the subjective level, and how free their minds are to develop creative thoughts, Deepak Chopra writes, Oh, you didn't think we were going to talk about Deepak Chopra today, did you? You never know what's coming your way. He writes, although everyone's brain can create countless thoughts, just to take a number at 10 thoughts a minute, a single brain would conjure up, to up more than 14,000 thoughts a day. 
five million a year, three hundred fifty million in a lifetime. Think about that: three hundred fifty million thoughts in a lifetime. Three hundred fifty million thoughts in a lifetime. We are our thoughts, and each of us creates worlds in our minds. At this very moment, we are creating worlds in our minds, and we have freedom to think about what worlds we create through the most creative sphere of all, the sphere of the mind. And this creative uniqueness gives rise to a well-known ethical truth. Now I'm quoting from the Talmud and Sanhedrin, one that many of you have heard before. Adam, Adam, was created alone in order to teach us that causing a single to perish is like destroying the entire world. And saving a single soul is like saving the entire world. Another teaching, Adam was created alone for the sake of peace, so that we cannot say to each other, my ancestor was greater than yours. We are all created from the dust of the earth. Earth, and none of us can claim that our ancestors were greater than anyone else's. You know, um, I saw actually that uh, there's a philosopher who talks about the afterlife, and he doesn't talk about the afterlife such as Olam Haba, the next world, but he talks about afterlife as the life we have left behind uh, for those still living on earth. And um, he says, this is an alternative way to think of the afterlife, that it is uh, not where our soul goes after this world, that's a whole conversation itself, but the life we have left behind for those who are still living here, that is another form of afterlife that we can talk about, kind of the legacy we have left um, to our family, to the Jewish community, to the world, um, as, being a, as being a form of afterlife. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg builds much of his theology off this preceding passage. Here is one of his most acute accountings of how human dignity is bound up with human uniqueness. Now I'm quoting from his, his, uh, his commentary on Pirkei Avot. Human beings are beloved because they were created in the image of God, according to Tractate Sanhedrin 37a, which is what we just quoted. Anything created in the image of God is bestowed with three intrinsic and inalienable, inalienable dignities. First, infinite value. Saving one's life is equivalent to saving a whole world. That's what we said. Second, equality. And third, uniqueness. Images created by human beings, such as on currency or stamps, can be replicated in mass produce. But each human being created by God is like no other. The latter quality is the mark of being created in God's image, for even identical twins are not completely identical. Uniqueness bespeaks human free will, which enables individual divergent responses from, each, from every person in every situation. Honoring the quality and uniqueness implies democracy. Respecting the dignity of uniqueness implies rejecting stereotypes and unfair generalizations. But a human being, now I'm done quoting Yitz, but a human being isn't created to be a finished product. The world is created, is created to be refined. It continues to be refined. When the Torah says, which God created to do, it's telling us that the world is full of imperfect things. As the Midrash states, everything created during the 60s of creation requires rectification. That's from the Pasik de Rabati. Okay, just a page and a half left here. Consider an early refinement process by God based upon a Talmudic legend, which understands the origins of, quote unquote, the two great lights of creation. The story suggests that while the contents of the world face a constant challenge to recreate themselves continually, even God can take the process of recre recreation too far. An ancient Talmudic legend explains the presence of atonement offering among the sacrifices for the new world, 
generally seen as a time of feasting. It tells a tale about the sun and the moon originally created as, quote unquote, two, the two great lights, and why God needs to bring an atonement offering. God does Teshuva, God repents. Here's what it says in the Talmud, in Chulim. God then saw that sunlight needed to be stronger to create the bright light of day, while moonlight should be dim to faintly illumine the night. Go diminish yourself, God said to the moon. When she protested, God had to force her to be smaller, and God made her light to wax and wane each month. But divine justice understood that, that this was wrong, that God had sinned in retracting the moon's original equality. Life as God created, or as it emerged from within the one, is not fair. Therefore, God said that on each day, each new moon day, <laughs> each new moon day among Israel's offerings were the obligation to bring an atonement for me because I diminished the moon. <laughs> I laughed because I, I was saying to my kids on the way to school this day that Sunday is called Sunday because of the sun, and Monday is called Monday because of the moon. And then uh, they asked the next, uh, next natural question. So, new, what's Tuesday? What's Wednesday? And I should have thought about that before I started this. Because oh, I have no idea. So if you know something, post it in the chat here. Why do we call the other days what we call it? Saturday? Is that because of Saturn? I have no idea. So tell me, because uh, you, can, you can tell me why the days of the week in English are called what they're called. In any case, we said here, moon day. So God does Teshuvah. God repents. Uh, Thursday is Thor's day. Okay. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, worry about what's going on over there. Um, so God repents because of making the moonlight weaker. Than the sun, than the sunlight, named after Greek gods. Okay, interesting. Thank you. And um, um, and so too we see that creation needed to be tweaked, even in this regard. There were going to be two great lights, and one had to be made greater, and one weaker, one subservient to the other. The moon was only going to share the sun's light rather than create it be generative of its own light. Okay, we got a lot of things going on over there at the days. In this thread, we see that not all creations are good just because they are new or because they are the product of creativity. In the Torah, the first divinely created weapon appears early. The first weapon, right? This is in Genesis 3, 24, followed soon after by the first humanly created weapons. Genesis 4, 22. Weapons were a tragic, although perhaps necessary, form of progress in ancient society, enabling the vulnerable to protect themselves. What do you think? Was a weapon progress? The creation of a weapon. You could say, oh, weapons are, are instruments of, uh, of murder, of destruction. But you could also say this enabled the vulnerable to protect themselves. So how do we understand? Are weapons inherently good or bad? Or are weapons like technology? They can be used for good or for bad. Um, so uh, you, you'll, you'll share your thoughts if you want. But it did not take long for violent abuse of these creations, of course. Civilization continues to progress technologically as governments and societies must take increased responsibility for the violence for which the output of that progress is, is, is used. We collectively continue to face the complex divine challenge that we mold the wonders of creation to the needs that they are, that they are appropriately, that they appropriately serve. Indeed, one Midrash imagines the, the Satan. Who's the Satan? Satan. Like people think Satan doesn't exist in Jewish thought. Of course Satan exists. If you just read the book of Job, you see it, that we have the Satanic figure. One Midrash, of course, it's not as prominent as in the Christian thought. 
Uh, one Midrash imagines the Satan in conversation with God. The Satan thinks that as a creator, the Satan is similar to God, missing the point of creation entirely. Here's what it, what it says in Mark Shapiro's book, Changing the Immutable, for, uh, quoting, um, no, 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 this is a mistake. This is not quoting Shapiro. This is a source, uh, a Midrash, that is merely quoted over. For you created heaven, I created earth. You created firmaments, I created deeps. You created animals, I created demons. You created good things, I created bad things. You created the Garden of Eden, I created Gehenna. It means hell. The Holy One blessed, the Holy One be blessed, said to him, who is in this world, you say to me, I created Gehenna, so pass into the midst of Gehenna. And that's the Midrash explanation as to why Satan is, is, is pushed into hell, right? Because uh, to be pushed out of that space. And so Satan thinks that um, he's equal with, with God as a creator of the evil as, as a juxtaposition or uh, a counterweight to the good. It is precisely our ability to create, indeed to do good acts in creative ways, that led Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik to argue in favor of more concern with this world than the next. We just did a class a week or two ago on, on the centrality of Olam Haba, the afterlife in Jewish thought, that Soloveitchik was of the 20th century camp that argued we, that Jews should focus more on this world than the next. And here's what he writes. The halakha is not at all concerned with a transcendent world. The world to come is a tranquil, quiet world that is wholly good, wholly everlasting, and wholly eternal, wherein a man will receive the word for, reward for the commandments which per, per he performed in this world. However, the receiving of a reward is not a religious act. Therefore, halakhic man prefers, to, prefers the real world to a transcendent existence, because here in this world, man is given the opportunity to create, act, accomplish, while there in the world to come, he is powerless to change anything. This is one of the reasons, actually, why we're told not to wear um, mitzvah objects in a cemetery, right? For example, one who wears tzitzit or a talis, to not wear that externally because it's mocking the dead. The dead no longer can do mitzvot, and we're showing right in front of their grave that we, we still have the power of freedom to do mitzvot. Um, okay, so to conclude, when we create fabric, what or who are we creating it for? Are we going to keep the poor warm from the cold? And how are we creating it? Are we using oppressed labor or are we creating the fabric in an enlightened manner? Are we weaving a beautiful tapestry to inspire acts of goodness? Or are we weaving out of ego, self-interest, merely to produce something new, different? What is it that we spend our lives toiling over in our warp and woof? The work is hard, but it can have a deep purpose aligned with, indeed, woven into our souls. Thank you, friends. I'm going to pause there. And I would love to open the conversation. Questions and thoughts, agreements and disagreements. Don't forget to unmute yourself. You're talking, you're on mute. Wow, this never happened. 
silence. Uh, Rabbi, this is Eric. Hi, Eric. Um, you mentioned earlier about loving all God's creatures, but then talked about that, that within the uh, of all God's creations and creatures, there could be weapons. How does how do the different scholars, Midrash or Talmud, kind of explain the possible contradiction of to love, but yet to love those creatures, but yet those creatures can also, can be, there could be some like emotional reasons to not love those creatures too. Okay, awesome. I love that. I love that. There's a number of things I want to say there because it's such a good question. So let me just pause for a moment so others can reflect on this question too. <laughs> Where to begin? I love it. So many unfairly have compared Judaism to Christianity by oversimplifying by saying Christianity is a religion of love and Judaism is a religion of justice. Now, it's not hard to understand why someone would come to such a conclusion because Christianity is very simple. I don't say simple. God forbid is a derogatory uh, 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 word here. I don't mean to discredit Christianity's uh, arguments by any means, but it's rather simple. Um, that the idea is Jesus came and Jesus' disciples came and said, you know what? Judaism got it all wrong. Too many rules, too many mitzvot. Let's simplify this to the essence. Believe in God and, and love humanity. Of course, Christianity is more than that. And, and I also, even if it wasn't more than that, that itself can be powerful. Jesus, to love God and love humanity. I mean, you know, what, what a beautiful idea. Um, and, and, and yet Judaism said, actually, love doesn't work like that. Um, love is going to have to be concretized into actions and laws and rules and justice seeking. And so um, we're going to need a, a very complex system to maintain such a commitment. Now, it's a great debate, which we're not going to have now, as to... Um, which can be more successful at create, at, for example, fostering nonviolence. Um, I mean, um, Christianity's history is the furthest thing from nonviolent. Um, but again, that's not a critique of Christianity. It might just be human nature, and Christianity is trying to tame that. But even uh, even the blood on the hand of popes and the like. Now, some people say, "Oh, Judaism is more successful at, at curbing such violence." Well, that's not necessarily true either, because it may simply be that um, we were powerless, that Jews were powerless for millennia and um, didn't have the power <laughs> to be violent. Um, and uh, today we do see, um, we do see violence um, and we'll have different interpretations of that now that Jews have sovereignty in the Middle East and how to make sense of, of that complicated situation. Um, and so uh, nonetheless, it's not, it's not fair to simply say that Jews weren't as violent as Christians throughout history simply because we weren't violent. But the response here, I think, what we could say about Judaism is a very non-naive perspective of human nature. What would a naive nature of human, what would a naive uh, philosophy of human nature be? Humans are fundamentally good. Humans are fundamentally good and will fundamentally do good. That's just empirically not true. Um, and Judaism understands that even the people who um, are the most good are going to make such mistakes every year that they're going to beat their chest at Yom Kippur, right? No one is going to be exempt from Yom Kippur. 
right? Everyone um, has a lot of uh, things to repent for each year. And so, um, and that's, that's even the most righteous of people. And so I think the philosophy of human nature there is that humans are not fundamentally evil as, as, as major segments of Christianity will argue, right? That humans have fallen from the Garden of Eden and we are inherently sinful. Judaism rejects that philosophy that humans are inherently uh, evil, um, inherently um, uh, leaning towards, towards sinful behavior, and also rejects the, um, the optimistic viewpoint that humans are fundamentally good. Um, in fact, I think the most dominant philosophy throughout Jewish thought is that humans exist within the tensions of impulses. The Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov. We have an inclination in us to do good, an inclination in us to only feed our own self-interest, and these are at war constantly. The altruistic impulse and the self-interested impulse, right? The selfish impulse and the giving impulse. The, uh, the bodily and the soulful. That's not to say the bodily, the body is inherently sinful, of course, but the notion of just feed, feed my gut, get my own, you know, operate in a fear-based mentality to get more for me versus an expanded consciousness. Of, expanded sense of self and so based on that judaism takes a very non-naive approach to what people are capable of and thus the laws are in place to protect the vulnerable from such harm we don't just rely on love we create systems of laws and protections to protect the vulnerable that's why a jewish wedding is very unromantic when we read the ketubah the ketubah <laughs> says nothing about romantic love it's like, here's your obligations to clothe the person and feed them and take care of their sexual needs, right? In the, right, and take care of everything that they need, right? Because this is what love is about. It's about obligations, taking care of each other. This is not about like candles and, and a nice glass of, of wine and, uh, and beautiful music that we're going to dance to. Okay, enjoy that if you want to do that, right? Romance is wonderful, right? But love is about taking care of each other, taking care of each other, physically, emotionally, spiritually, taking care of each other. And so, um, and so, uh, and that's why actually there's a whole disillusionment in American society around love, because this romantic connection is so rare that people get disillusioned. Oh, my relationship isn't good because when I watch TV, it tells me that loving relationships are supposed to be really uh, fiery, passionate connection and engagement. And that's not what mine looks like. We must be doing it all wrong. Right? But in fact, we might not be doing it all wrong at all. We're taking care of each other, according to Jewish law, and you're not feeling fired up all the time. Maybe that's okay. So, so to go back, so I think this idea um, is that um, we need uh, actually progress, however we define progress, is not about human nature. Human nature doesn't progress. We are, are as barbaric as people were in, go back to whatever time period you want to say was most barbaric. You know, the Middle Ages, you know, cavemen uh, 3,000 years ago, right? Go, uh, pre Greek philosophers, when there wasn't even any philosophy yet, any thing we call philosophy. So, whatever we consider, oh, those barbaric people, they sacrificed children and they, there was no legal recourse for raping women. And there was, you know, you could burn dogs alive. I mean, people still burn dogs. You could do whatever you wanted. I mean, the things people could do. You could have a pogrom and there's no international law. There's no notions of human rights. Point back to whatever you consider to be like the pre-modern, the pre-legal times when there was no for any type of group. Okay, I would argue 
our human nature is exactly the same as it was then. We are just as barbaric as we were then. What has changed? Our external structures. Now, of course, in human evolution, it's changes, but that, that evolution isn't over the course of 2,000 years. That's over a much longer period of time. So what's progressed are the societal structures, right? If people believe democracy is progress, if people believe concretizing human rights into systems of law is, is progress, if people believe feminism, women's, women's right to vote is, is progress, if people believe the end of modern slavery, of course, slavery is not gone. There's tens of millions of slaves in the world. But let's just say slavery in America is progress. Um, and, and the list goes on. What, what progress looks like, however we define it, is not human nature, but in our social constructs, the systems of law that protect people. I would argue the same in Jewish thought, that the progress is not um, that, oh, now, now humans are fundamentally different, but actually that we have structured societies in a way where we balance the tensions. Today, we talk about it as, oh, liberals think this and conservatives think this, and everything's binary, right? But in Jewish thought, everything's dialectical. You take the great debates that we used to have in politics, right? Today, there's no great debates. It's all just disgusting, right? But the great debates we used to have, if you actually look at the issue of abortion, it's not just, oh, pro-choice or pro-life, and you ask yourselves profound questions. When does life begin, right? If you talk about, if you talk about issues of death penalty, let's talk about, about, let's talk about welfare. Right? If you talk about the tension between humans being motivated to go out to work, not just getting handouts, and the other side of saying, taking care of the vulnerable who are stuck in poverty. What's the balance there? How do we find the balance between humans taking responsibility for going out to work and not relying on government uh, handouts and taking care of people who need, who, who need help to survive? Right? There are great debates of tensions. And when society can be structured to balance these tensions appropriately, rather than move to extremes, we can move to a very profound place. Um, and so one form of progress, according to Jewish thought, we explored this yesterday, is uh, Jews having a nation state. Now, we might disagree with that, but th th that was part of the Messianic vision, is that people could have self-determination and have their own, uh, their own safety within, within their own lands. Um, and so... Okay, now all of that coming back to Eric's question here of what does this mean for love? So what does this mean for love? If we rely on law to be progress. Now, let me be clear, it's not just law, because many times people say, oh, Jewish law should do this, or American law should do that, right? We talk about the Supreme Court these days uh, with a lot happening over there. And um, I actually think a lot of things should stay out of law. Law should not be equated with morality, right? that actually there are many things that are part of the good life, which should be separate from law. I mean, some of it's obvious. I think part of the good life is about spirituality. I don't think the law should have anything to do with spirituality. American law should be separate from religion. And we should say, as free people, we seek spiritual connection. And that is something entirely separate from the realm of American law, right? People have the freedom to exercise, you know, to seek religion, but it's separate. Right? So too. Um, so there's many things that go beyond the realm of law. And that's why the, the notion that every solution to a social problem should be political is fundamentally wrong. Right? Many solutions are educational rather than legislative. We don't need to legislate every form of good in society. Many forms of good we need to educate. 
Now, here's the problem, friends. If we just said that progress is about legal societal structures, not about human nature progress, how do we sustain education? So that's, a, that's an interesting challenge. If we fundamentally want to educate people to see the human dignity of the other and to live in a way where they act with dignity towards the other, how do we sustain that when we can't always concretize it in law? Like we're not going to say, you have to say please and thank you when you order food in, the restaurant, in, in a restaurant, right? But how do we build a culture that sustains that? Okay, we'll keep that question alive. Now, now again, to go back to Eric's, Eric's point here around love in relationship to this idea of, of justice. Now, I am not someone who believes in, in, um, um, in loving everyone equally. I hear people talk about this, and I literally have no idea what they're talking about. And forgive me if this is where you're at. This, this idea of love the world, love the world. It sounds amazing, right? But I, I, I tend to run away from people who talk like this. I, I love people who are like, I love the world. I just love everyone. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Did you, how do you love your mother? How do you love your brother? Right? How do you love your neighbor? <laughs> you know? The amount of demands we have just to love your family, the amount of love we have just to love people in our community, the amount of love we have to have to, to love um, a stranger. And um, I think there can be a very naive view out there. Of, I just love everything. Love is this infinite kind of token that we can just sprinkle all over. But I actually think my belief, and it sounds unromantic, but love is finite, not infinite and that we have to be careful of where we share our love. Because love is just like our resources are finite, we have to be smart with how we give our charitable dollars. You can't give charitable dollars everywhere. So we have to be very strategic of where we're going to give our charitable dollars. So too, we have a limited amount of love because love is not just this infinite emotion. Love is our actions, how we take care of each other, right? And so where will I share my love? And so I, I very much believe we should use discretion in our love. And so let me distinguish you. I would say there is, there is a romantic love. That should be extremely narrow. Where we share our sexual love, where we share our romantic love. I believe, and I know this is, this is growing out of popularity in some, uh, in some circles today. I'm, although it's probably not so controversial. I believe in monogamy, right? Is that controversial? Like, I believe, for example, one should have uh, one should put, one should have one um, intimate partner um, because that is something that shouldn't be shared beyond one partner. I know that there's others who challenge that view today that it's too limited in some cases, but I think that's an idea. Okay, then I think one should treat their own children different than children who aren't their children. Now this is very difficult for me because we're a foster parents, and how do I treat our biological children differently in the home than our foster children? You can't. You can't. You got to treat them the same, right? And so what does that look like? Do I have the same moral obligation to foster children in my home as I do to biological children? And if I do, then doesn't every American have that? How come just because I signed up, I have that? But the one who didn't sign up to be a foster parent doesn't have that obligation to the, the 700,000 children who are in foster, enter foster care in America every year, right? So it's an interesting tension there. And, um, uh, and, and what if, uh, Okay, all right, anyways, we can keep going on this point. So in any case, I think love should be used with discretion. When it, and, but there's, here's the point. There's different kinds of love. There's love of God. There's love of, of partner. There's love of child. 
there's love of friend, and then there's love of stranger. And I think that, I think what, what the Maharal is challenging us here to do, I'm sorry this is such a long answer. This is, this was, this is way too long, but um, it's just such a rich question. That there are different kinds of love and different requirements in each type of love. And the Maharal saying that we should love all of God's creations is a very limited type of love I think we're talking about. It is a love that we can feel, and here, in fact, it does move more to the realm of emotion than to action commitment. We can feel, and in rare moments, we'll be actualized, right? In rare moments, we'll be actualized. But where do I need to actualize my moral obligation through justice versus actualize my moral obligation through love as something fundamentally different? If I'm driving down the road and someone's car is parked and they're asking for help, do I have an obligation to help them? Does that come from justice, an obligation, or does it come from love, right? And, and are the two separate? And do I have to love someone who, God forbid, killed my friend? Do I have to love people who have done very evil things? There are those who suggest out in the world, if you want to heal, you need to love even the oppressor, right? I'm not of that camp. I'm not of that camp. And I actually think... Um, that the part that we love of them is something very abstract. It is the image of God within each person that we continue to love. But it is not the person who has chosen to do such horrific things. It's almost as if there is, a, um, there is an existential split within the human self. There is me, and then there's the divine me. And one might say the religious project is uniting those two. The self and the divine self, uniting them. But when one chooses the path of evil, they bifurcate that. They have a fracture within the self. The divine self is now fragmented from the, um, the individual self. And so I can still love the divine self within the human being, but the um, individual self is, is, really, um, uh, is really something that we need not love. And so, uh, wow, there's a lot more to say about that, but let me, let me pause there for other uh, thoughts and questions. I want to give just a few notes, part of what you said. Um, as far as law, I mean, I see it in the Jewish way as a dean with chesed. And, you know, to me, that's like, it doesn't necessarily occur in, in secular law. But even if you look at halachic development and how it developed, over the centuries and even, you know, closer over the decades, there's definitely been a practicality to halakha and definitely an idea of not strict deen, but deen with chesed. When you're talking about love, I think we have to put that idea away, but think more in terms of, um, for fellow human beings, respecting their dignity. So, you know, and compassion. Again, chesed, compassion. I think the world revolves around compassion. But, you know, like to a stranger, okay, you meet somebody on the road whose car broke down and either you help them or you, you call the motor league. Out of compassion, they're a fellow human being. But we, we wouldn't necessarily extend compassion to somebody like Hitler, right? So like human beings definitely have that capability of being good or bad. But I think what we have to keep in mind is um, the compassion and the dignity for a fellow human being as we hold for them. The other thought I just wanted to bring was, since you're talking about 
creativity as, as um, weaving leads us to the idea. So that gives me just the thought, because I thought about last Shabbat when I was walking along with through the autumn fields and enjoying nature. So, Shab yeah, you got to come up here and see autumn. Um, Shabbat is a chance to stay away from creativity, but just to think about creation, about what Hashem did for all of us and Hashem's creatures, be it trees, our pet dog, our pet cat, other people, whatever. But anyways, those are my thoughts for the day. Uh, yeah, just one word to connect to your first thought is, I believe, and push back if you disagree, that we can be more capable of compassion and acts when we trust the system that we live in. Um, when trust breaks down in the social or communal or familial realm, it becomes harder to operate with compassion. But when there's a general sense of trust that, going back to din and chesed, like you said, law and kindness or um, judgment and kindness, that when we feel the society is just or the community is fair or the family, there's some level of structure that exists there, our ability to rise beyond the letter of the law, so to speak, and be compassionate when we feel safe can be more possible. And so I think that actually by creating a lawful society, a lawful world, our ability to um, bring out the better angels of people can be more possible. Um, okay, so thank you for that. And, and your point of Shabbat and creativity is well taken too. Could someone if else? If I can just answer yeah. to that one thing. So I'm always bringing up Canadian, but our, our motto is um, peace, um, stability, and good government. Like, wow, how far can you get from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? <laughs> but but when, you, when you live in a society where the idea is more communal and the idea is more about peace and you trust government, that's definitely a way to create a more compassionate and um, caring society. Okay, someone I else. I, yeah, Eileen, hi. Hi. I kind of thought when I saw the picture of the loom, and I think everybody weaves their own tapestry. And some people do a better job at it than others. Right. And so I think part of what this conversation around weaving our own tapestry is, is about the narrative of our life. That we have a life narrative. And we learn how to weave together these pieces, the warp and the woof, where um, we create a coherent whole, a sense of identity and purpose. Where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? Right? And how, does, how is this all connected? I think there is a form of suffering that comes from um, sewing without seeing the tapestry. Without seeing the you bigger picture. Right, right. And um, this is a cautionary point on something that no one offers cautionary points on, but mindfulness. Because in some ways, mindfulness, which is really valuable, is about being so present in the moment. This moment right here, right now. So much spirituality is about that, here now. And actually, there's another form of spirituality, which is about going, transcending the here and now, transcending the mindful state of just being here. And that is 
zooming out to the bigger picture of the tapestry, right? Where one is not here and now, one is beyond the here and now. One is a part of the tapestry of their life narratives, right? And that, as we think of a blanket keeping ourselves warm, can in fact be very warming. This sense of um, existing in some peace with one's past, which requires healing, resisting at some level with peace of one's future, which means calming the anxieties. Right? Many of us live in tension with the past and the future. The past is full of regret and pain. The future is full of anxiety and uncertainty. And how do we live in a present that calms that past and that future? That we see a tapestry which is not perfect, but is whole, it's whole. And it's ours, it's ours. And then when we're ready, we can zoom out to see how our tapestries interconnect. And I think that this is the interfaith work. This is the justice work. This is the self-healing work of coming to see the world being weaved in such a way. And part of this is that the parts that we consider to be evil or bad in us, in our past, in the world, inevitably are part of the fabric. It doesn't mean we justify them, but it means we come to peace to some degree with the whole. The whole means there's pain. The whole means there's suffering. The whole means there's alienation, right? There are, there are holes in the, in, in the tapestry. But this is what is. This is what is. If we're constantly longing for the perfect, we live in a constant state of disappointment constant state of, of feeling like there's some life that we don't have that others have. The grass is always greener, a state of discontent. American culture is full of discontent, right? That people have what they really want, and I'm not one of those people, right? They have a perfect marriage. They have a perfect relationship with their kids. They have a perfect job, perfect wealth, perfect physical looks, right? And I don't have that. And actually, this coming to peace with what is, I think is a part of what this is to step back from the weaving process, to see that the weaving is always happening. Another way this is explained is that there's not an act of prayer, Rav Cook says. The soul is constantly in a state of prayer. It's whether we tap into the channel of that prayer. The tefillah is always happening from the soul. It, 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 it's almost like you can view a channel, like the, the, the soul channel to God, and there's a prayer that's constantly happening there. And what it means to pray is merely to attune one's consciousness to the fact that that's happening. We think of prayer, I'm going to go in and open my book and say these words. Okay, that's one kind of prayer. The other kind is to realign our consciousness with that channel that's being communicated. The divine light within the self and divinity beyond the self and tapping into that consciousness. So too, the weaving is always happening. On Shabbat, we step back from the active weaving to see the weaving, the tapestry that One more person. Oh yeah, I have a question. I wrote it in the chat, but I'll, I'll just say it. 
Uh, and that was, what does the notion of cross-stitching mean for us in a metaphysical sense? Uh, the days of the week, a long thread in Shabbat is the crossover thread. If so, how does that inform our conception of time and space? Hmm. Amazing. So it's a really it's a really profound question that he's asking here, and this um, this beautiful idea that the that the the woof the work of the woof um, this horizontal and vertical overlapping can be thought of as how does Shabbat um, overlap with um, with the weekdays, and I think that this is one of the big ideas that AJ is touching on of this whole re really series of of the malachim and, and and how we repair the world with this type of consciousness which is Shabbat is not parallel, but perpendicular. Shabbat is perpendicular to the other days. And that is something that we struggle with as modern people. We just want the continuity, like I'm just always on my phone. I'm just always go, go, go in a rat race. This notion of a day of the week, which runs perpendicular to the other days, in a way, what it does is it renews time, it renews space, because it challenges the momentum. It stops the momentum in order to um, reevaluate, reevaluate that process. And in fact, um, when you look at at what's being um, what's being sewn together, you need both directions, right? You need the warp and the wolf. And so um, how do we also in our own lives realize that we are beings of doing and beings of being? <laughs> we need the doing and we need the being. We are beings of, 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 of rushing, of urgency, and we are beings of peace and of calm, right? This, this balance can restore a harmony to our existence where we can um, not have one form of being. And friends, uh, this is a note to end on today, that a big source of freedom in our lives is, is escaping one way of being. People get trapped when they have one way to be in their life. They are go, 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 or they are sad, 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 or they are one identity. In fact, freedom can be that we have multiple ways to be in the world. Right? And that is perpendicular, not parallel. There may be times it's parallel, right? Um, but actually, for the whole tapestry to exist and be held together, there need to be some perpendiculars as well. And so, yes, I mean, so how does Shabbat intertwine in the loom? Um, and so, oh, that was, yeah. So, and so I think that, um, that this, uh, what it fundamentally can do is hold together the other six days by challenging that structure uh, in time and space. Have a great, have a great day, everyone. See, hope to see you next week. Thank you so much.